Hello and welcome to Farmerama. This month, we head to Herefordshire for a farmer who is rethinking his apple growing. We get the latest on composting, with and without tea, from an experiment we first heard about last year. And we learn about an innovative business model for community farming that's proving to be a great success in the Netherlands. But first, we get a perspective on dealing with the inevitable tensions that pop up between different generations trying to farm together. Here is ecological farming star Joel Salatin with his thoughts. This parent-child uh, tension is everywhere. The you know the, the the parents who own the farm or have you know developed the farm um, feel threatened by the children's uh, creativity and seemingly lack of of gravitas about how uh, much work it is to acquire the tractor, the barn, the, you know the land. And of course, the young the younger generation, of course, they feel constrained and inhibited by the older generation's orthodoxy. Two things I would say. One is that um, there needs to be place for the young person to try something embryonically without threatening the mothership. Um, and so carve out a hectare, half a hectare, two whatever, to, to create, all right, this will be yours. Look, what parent would be interested to see what their child could do on in the corner of that barn or the corner of that shed or the corner of that field and and, and okay the child is, is gonna say it's not big enough well you know what it has to be big enough that's the compromise the, the younger generation has to be willing to to try a very small embryo and the older generation seeing that it's so small and doesn't threaten the mothership is much more likely to allow that to happen. The second thing is to actually uh, separate farm income streams so that the gener so that the generations uh, can enjoy um, um, performance or functionally oriented compensation. So that uh, I call these fiefdoms, you know, so that. Um, the parents can have their enterprise, the kids can have their enterprise, and, uh, and they sink or fail on their own merits and they don't jeopardize each other so that the child's uh, failure doesn't jeopardize the parent's income and the parent's uh, curmudgeonness doesn't jeopardize the next generation's inventiveness. And, and so kind of separating that out to where you're not just, you know, all for one and un for, one for all, you know, just sharing in common. Sharing in common sounds good on paper and it sounds so warm and fuzzy and communally, but in, in real sense, it, it doesn't work because pretty soon one's going to feel like they're carrying the heavier load, yeah, the yeah. other's not, and we all feel. So those are, the, you know, divide the, the income streams and, and create spheres of autonomy and responsibility. In our family, you know, we have four, we have my wife and I and our son and daughter-in-law, all basically four of us as, as equal you know, people, and we actually sat down and created job descriptions. So we didn't step on each other's toes, uh, and, and it was very liberating to create these spheres of authority, autonomy, and influence for uh, all of us.
Sophie Alexander was a finalist for Arable Farmer of the Year last year, and that was partly thanks to her work with compost tea trials at Hemsworth Farm in Dorset. You might remember hearing about these trials in the episode we did on the Organic Farmers and Growers event in July last year. Sophie is back with an update on the highs and lows of applying compost teas to arable crops and the next step on her composting journey. I would have liked to have carried on, but one of the big obstacles was that we no longer had access to the same sprayer. And I'd made the decision, really, that I didn't want to invest in my own sprayer. I'd prefer to um, scale up the actual compost-making operation and apply compost to the fields rather than compost tea. We were finding in the third year that our compost had a very good analysis. It was very active. It had all the right sort of fungal um, components. And then the tea, which is brewed for 24 hours, should have multiplied the biology. Um, And we were finding that that didn't really happen. So what came out of the sprayer at the end, which we also analysed, was just as good as the compost tea. But none of it seemed to have a really um, multiplication of what was in the compost. So... We were going through this fairly labour-intensive process of making the compost into tea with doubtful results. So having got the confidence to make good compost, I thought, right, let's spend our time and money scaling up the compost-making process and, and not worry about investing in a big sprayer and doing it that way. The other thing that concerned me was that we, the trials, in the trials we were applying compost tea to growing crops. If I was to do it again now, I think I would apply the tea during the um, herbal lay fertility growing period because I didn't like just driving over crops. Um, We tried to do it as early in the season as possible but it would still leave wheelings and wheelings in crops can let disease in. And also I felt that the time of year, it tended to be the sunniest, brightest, hottest time of year when it's very hard to get a spray of microbes to penetrate the soil. Anyone else who does it in future, I think one thing that really could be a valuable line of inquiry is the disease-suppressing ability of compost teas on crops. But I was doing it really to try and, um, as a catalyst to microbiological activity in the soil. So I would definitely do it on pasture from now on um, and not crops. One of the other considerations about not any longer using compost tea was the amount of water we ended up using. And, you know, here we are in a drought-ridden summer and I would feel uneasy about not only am I using, was I using 8,000 litres of water to dilute the compost and apply to the fields, but the cleaning process for both the sprayer and the brewer itself. 
used thousands of litres and that's not going to any good use, that's just going down the drain. So um, in terms of building up the compost quantities, I'm now buying in green waste, past 100 green waste from a small public waste um, enterprise. I'm very lucky to have something fairly nearby which really makes a big effort to clean it. And that forms probably about 30-40% of the compost we're making. And then there's a livery enterprise on the farm. So we get straw and horse manure from that. Our own grass cuttings, um, wood chippings, um, old bales of hay, straw, uh, and a clay component. We use clay from the farm, making up about 10% of the compost. And one of the really interesting things that we found so far about that is if we don't use the clay component in a compost pile, it doesn't retain water. If it has got the clay component, it remains really, you know, moist and retains the water very efficiently. Part of the process of making this so well-humified, aerobically prepared compost is you need to turn it a lot. So when you first form the piles, you might need to turn it four or five times in the first 10 days, two weeks. And um, looked at lots of bits of machinery uh, to achieve that. We had an old tractor, but um, it just wasn't manoeuvrable enough. You had to have such huge spaces between all the piles of compost. Um, And then we looked at a windrow machine. But again, it needs quite a substantial tractor to drive it it's incredibly slow and mechanically mm, can be quite unreliable and cumbersome so we bought uh this sort of diddy toy it's called a noisome whacker and it's a mini loader um turns on a sixpence and we can double the number of piles we have within the same space uh, and it has other multiple uses on the farm, so it's a really good gizmo. When we were in the compost tea trials, one of the things that really attracted me to the compost tea concept was that I only needed to make 100 kilos of compost to treat 40 hectares of, of field because of the dilution of the tea And I just at that time couldn't see how I could make enough actual compost to make a difference on the farm. But having now got more confident about making compost, um, ultimately I'd like to make a thousand tonnes a year. But this year I think we'll be up to 400 tonnes. And it lasts, I don't think it's an application for a subsequent crop it's a long-term soil conditioning. So you can apply it maybe to the grass lays, but then it'll have a, um, a cumulative benefit for subsequent crops.
We'd like to thank Rebel Kitchen for their ongoing support. We love that they're a B Corp. It basically means that as a business, you're accountable to maximise not just profits, but also your social and ecological contribution to the earth. The B Corp movement is something that we find very inspiring. And we're delighted that Rebel Kitchen is supporting us in the work that we're doing. Stephen Ware and his ancestors have been growing apples on Throne Farm in Herefordshire for a good long time. And in the last century, they found themselves becoming increasingly specialised in their apple growing. In recent years, disease has become a real challenge, and it's put some pressure on the densely planted bush orchards. Stephen's decided to diversify his farming setup, and although apples are still key to his business, the landscape is beginning to change. Uh, the farm is Throne Farm. That's like what the Queen sits on. Um, the motivation for the name was that King Charles stayed in the farmhouse in uh, 1645 when we used to make cider on the farm. Um, well, we, my ancestors. <laughs> and that would pay the workmen, but also it was like a diversification uh, for the farmhouse. And so uh, here we have some... Uh, silty loam soils which are pretty fertile and we best with uh, a lot of water perhaps too much sometimes and so we have quite a disease challenge uh, in our orchards for uh, fung fungi a scab and that type of thing and so the motivation really for the agroforestry started from finding ways uh, of growing the apples uh, semi-intensively but without with less disease challenge and so by growing them in long lines and then having a big gap we get heat um, and air around the trees so they dry out a lot quicker uh, and it takes that, that stress away that you would find in a, in a uh, modern bush orchard as we term that. The big spin-off then is that it's uh, like any good permaculture system in that you have the boundary between the trees and the cropping land and so within that sort of uh, transition zone we've got a line of trees then we've got a line of um, pollinators which bridge the ends of the field from one hedge at one end to the other end. Uh, and so our, our, our conventional bush orchards are sort of wildlife deserts almost. And we're, we're, we're penetrating right into the field with that, uh, with that sort of uh, natural predators um, and, uh, and pollinators. And then that transition zone continues into the arable cropping uh, in the middle. Uh, which as a spin-off we have different levels of rooting zones so the trees root lower than the arable crops and you've got the uh, the pollinators in between um, which would be massive diversity within the uh, agroforestry system uh, so when the leaves fall you've got you've got the brown uh, leaves to decompose and that encourages the fungal population which is pretty devoid in our soil or has become over the last few years and that's it in a nutshell Rotational grazing or a, a mob grazing is something that we want to consider. Um, my father had a mixed farm and it was running right through through the year. You had lambs, lambing, and then uh, calving uh, right the way through, Arab planting spring crops, tending to your uh, cattle, sheep. Um, then you had a harvest of the wheat and cereals and into potatoes and then uh, selling your, your livestock. We've mixed 
uh, farm like that, you've got a rotation and uh, it all fits together. Now we've been pushed down this monocultural route. Um, we, we lack the organic matter return to the soil, which is, and that's a pretty obvious statement that people say, but it is what it is. So I'm looking to share farm uh, with someone who can run some cattle up and down the strips. And the nice thing at is that the trees map a natural uh, avenue for the mob grazing so that it's a bit like playing golf i suppose you're pointing in the same direction the cattle know where they're going you're you know where they're going uh and they just go up and down in a in a sort of a, a, a strip um sense uh between the trees from the agroforestry uh which it, it it doesn't sound like much for these days with mapping but actually it just looks more obvious to me when you actually look at it now now that we've got the trees in place Being at Stephen's farm is incredibly inspiring. It was a massive undertaking and risk to take out large swathes of the dense apple orchards. But the newly planted apple strips look very happy, and there's a multitude of hues and busy bees in every direction. Kern von Sion makes the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture podcast, and for the podcast he interviews key players in the regenerative agriculture world. That includes people who are bringing new streams of money to the sector, and also those who are finding new business models and scaling up the practices on the ground. In these interviews, I'm talking to people who are scaling up the regenerative agriculture sector, either by increasing the inflow of investment capital or by scaling up the enterprises on and in the ground. And by doing so, exploring what it means to be an impact investor in regenerative agriculture. Here he speaks to Geert van der Veer, co-founder of Heron Boren, a community-owned regenerative farm in the Netherlands. With almost 200 families as co-owners, Geert believes this is the beginning of a scalable system for a new community farming model. Welcome, Geert. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, Kuhn. So to, to start with a personal question, and of course we would love to know more about Herenboer and the movement, but what made you start Herenboer and, and, and why regenerative agriculture in the Netherlands for you? Yeah, it has to do with my uh, uh, my experience during my uh, uh, since I was working uh, with the uh, farmers association here in in, in the Netherlands. Um, I've been working there between uh, ninety eight and two thousand and three, and I discovered a lot about the um, the way we are producing our food here uh, here in the Netherlands, of course, in Europe and and in the world. And I saw and I, uh, that things sh- should be different uh, done than, it, than it's been doing today. So that's why I was uh, trying to do it from, I, I was trying to change uh, from within the organization. And um, that, that took, my, took me so much effort uh, that I thought that I, I want to do it differently. So I started, I left the association, started to work uh, on projects on short chain uh, relationships between consumers and uh, farmers. And um, I did that for a couple of years. And also I there discovered that um, starting with the producer uh, is not always the same as starting to work with an entrepreneur. And so I discovered that uh, it's difficult for farmers to change their their, their uh, business model to change their way of thinking. It's also a cultural thing within the agricultural sector. 
uh, that I thought, okay, I've seen a lot and I've done a lot. And right now I have to do one thing. I have to develop my own, my, my own farm concept that shows the world, shows the Netherlands that it's possible uh, to do it differently. Um, uh, and the best way of having some impact is to, to, to do it. So then we started the uh, Hero Buren movement as we speak of it right now. And um, well, we opened the first farm uh, in 2015 uh, uh, we, we, in Boxel. And uh, right now we, having, we are having about 20 farms, uh, as in families who want their own f uh, farm uh, here in the Netherlands. Uh, we are helping to build that farm. So it's more than just one uh, spot uh, at the moment. There, there are many examples where people get together and, and maybe start farming or buy something etc but what really for me set you apart is that from the beginning you said this needs to scale we need to get to 100 we need to get 200 we need to go to 2000 farms that are operating in this way so from from the beginning you really designed it with scale in in place and at the moment there's one really operative and, and there are about 20 that are in different phases of 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 getting there, but can you explain? Let's say, let's take the one that is that's already operational. Yeah. Um, what what is it? What's the scale? What 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 is so different from the neighbors that are still farming traditionally? And and how yeah. how does it work? Okay, the the basic uh, principles are quite simple. There are uh, two hundred households representing five hundred people, and these households um, they became a member of our cooperative, and uh, they. Uh, did an investment, an investment of 2,000 euro, euros um, per household, and um, they brought also together uh, so 400,000 euros. And uh, that amount of money we spent on, uh, we invested in um, uh, in, the, in the first costs we had to make to start the farm. Uh, and the farm is a farm which produces a lot of different products. So we have fruits, vegetables, we have uh, meat as in chicken, uh, pork, beef. Um, uh, we, we, uh, we have eggs um, and we try to, uh, within these um, uh, different product groups, we try to have as much as possible uh, variety. So we have 12 different uh, 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 apples, uh, uh, eight different beers, etc., uh, etc. Et so, um, uh, and the what the members do, they um, they bring on a annual base all the costs uh, together um, uh, by uh, the contribution they pay to the cooperative. So each mouth in a household in a family, each mouth uh, pays about ten euros each week and gets, uh, in return for that, he gets uh, the products from our farm. And compared to the supermarket, uh, that's a lot cheaper. To be more concrete, they are committed for three years in the beginning. And of course, they can <laughs> they can stay a member as long as they want. But in the beginning, they uh, they are committed for three years. And that makes, uh, makes it possible to start this farm, because in the beginning, uh, it's not up and running uh, completely, so uh, that that commitment we needed, uh, but it's it it seems to be no not not even uh, um, a problem uh, to to find people who are this committed to to the concept. So it's um, it, it has to do with two things. It has to do with the community feeling, um, uh, being together, starting together, something that that makes the world a little bit better. 
in your own benefit benefit in this uh, <laughs> concrete and um, uh, the other thing is that we uh, are trying to uh, improve our uh, our techniques in uh, the way we produce the food so it has to do with the the way we keep our livestock it has to do with the way we are producing uh, vegetables etc uh, a lot of uh, permaculture influence uh, on our farm agroecology uh, is, is, is the main uh, principle we, uh, we we work with and so on you can say that it's not only nice and and and, and fun uh, to be a member of the cooperative but you can also have a lot of influence on the way we are producing so actually the entrepreneurship of this farm is not uh, on the level of the farmer but it's on the level of the cooperative and every member is the entrepreneur of our farm um, who's the farmer who's doing the farming is that uh, are those the, the the people in the cooperative or is there somebody else doing doing the day-to-day work a professional essential uh, 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 part of the concept is that we did not want to be we, we wanted to be independent of voluntarily uh, activities so uh, there is a farmer uh, who is getting his uh, his money from the cooperative a fixed salary which is nice for I mean is very different from many farmers I yeah can imagine. He's, he's, he's not having uh, the risks or the, the benefits of the farm that's uh, that's what the cooperative members uh, together have so um, he gets a salary uh, to be concrete eh? so um, uh, that's one f- farmer and he uh, has on a yearly basis there is an amount of money he can spend on hiring uh, more people to work on the farm if necessary because uh, uh, there are a lot of members who, who, who want to work on the farm. Uh, there is no necessary um, element that they have to come to work on the farm, but they... But if they do, of course, it saves costs, which benefits the cooperative. Yeah, exactly. So, so basically, the daily, the, the daily work has been... It's, been it's, it's the farmer who is doing the daily, the daily work. And he is, he's the manager of the farm and he can hire uh, uh, more people or he gets his, uh, uh, his people from the community working on the farm. A longer version of this interview can be heard on the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture podcast. You can find the link to that on our website or just search wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to Kern for getting in touch with us and also to Gaia for first sharing this story with us. What do you think about this model? I think it's a brilliant new innovation how to set up a farming community or um, a farm with many people living from the farm and being connected to the farm. Um, I think it is particularly important that not everyone has to contribute because not everyone wants to be working on a farm even if they want to have access to high quality food. So I think that's great. The only side to it that I find a little um, uncomfortable is I think that farmers are actually often very entrepreneurial um, in themselves. And it feels a little bit in this model like they're taking away that opportunity for the farmer to be entrepreneurial um, and not giving enough credit to the value of what the farmer does and, and how they actually are the people who go out and observe patterns in the field and see what's happening. And that's where real innovations can happen. Farm Realm is produced by myself, Abby Rose, Joe Barrett, and Katie Revel. Social media is led by Annie Landless with Eliza Jenkins and Olivia Oldham. 
and music is by Owen Barrett. This week we had contributions from Cohen Van Sechen and a shout out to one of our original hosts, Nigel, who interviewed Joel with myself.